tremendous verse, tremendous message. Uh, we'll discuss it a little bit more in the weeks to come. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you do not have a Bible and you'd like a Bible, there are some on the back table, back my right, your left. Um, you may feel free to go back and get a Bible um, so that you can follow along. There are some verses that are put up on the screen, but um, not all, and we might say not nearly enough, as uh, it might be a benefit to you to have that Bible. 1 Corinthians 11. The topic this morning uh, is communion, which I was telling uh, Matt Prayman this morning is very exciting. Because we are, it's the first Sunday of the month, and the first Sunday of every month we observe the Lord's Supper, we observe communion, and this Sunday, this first Sunday of the month is no different than any other that we've had. Um, And we're doing it in the morning service, which we alternate every month, morning and evening service. And we just so happen to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34 this morning, which is the passage in which uh, is typically used as we guide ourselves through the communion observance. So I'm very excited to be able to preach this in, a, in the most appropriate setting possible just prior to our observance of the communion. Last time we were together, we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 16, and we took note of verse 2. If you're there in 1 Corinthians, in verse 2, Paul said, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. And so we made mention of the fact that Paul was very pleased with how well they were following the ordinances or the traditions that he had laid in place or set in place for them to follow. We had mentioned that these were not commands from Jesus Christ, but more or less recommendations by the apostles to the church in Corinth as a means by which they were um, able to keep themselves in line with the spirit of the law of Jesus Christ. And so last week, uh, Paul did have one correction for them, and it was along the lines of the, of the submission in the church of females. And it was specifically talking about head coverings upon the women of the church. And it was something that Paul said in their particular time and in their particular culture and the manifestations of uh, feminine submission in that culture, it was something that was wise. It was something that was advisable. However, you remember right at the end of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16, right at the end of our time last week, he said, but if any man seemed to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So it was something that was clearly a liberty issue, something that should not split a church, something that should not um, be a source of tremendous contention. And Paul teaches very clearly that if it's something that is going to cause tremendous contention, well, the tradition doesn't need to be observed. However, that does not mean that the submission aspect is not necessary. Paul said that is, that is important. The head covering is simply a manifestation of feminine submission in the assembly. So if, if you say, well, pastor, um, I wasn't here. I didn't get that. I, I don't understand quite where you're going. I'd love to hear what you had to say on that. Well, all of our sermons are online, LegacyBaptistChurch.net, and I invite you to go back and listen to that sermon um, if you are interested, curious, or need a refresher on what was said. As we begin today, however, recall in verse 2, Paul says, I praise you. In verse 17, notice what he says as we begin. He says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. The thing that he's about to mention next, Paul says, I can't praise you in this context. I can't praise you in this regard. This is not something that I uh, can praise you over. You've not done well in this area. What area is it that they have not done well? An area that he had taught, that he had had an expectation of them, and they're not doing well. Well, let's dive into the text today and see what this area is. Look Look with me at verse 17. He says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church... 
I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. The thing which Paul is not pleased with them about is in their assembling together. That their times of assembling have been for the worse rather than for the better. Each week, you and I come together on multiple occasions often, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night, and we read the Word of God and we study the Word of God and we worship the Lord through singing and we pray together and we fellowship. And as believers, we do this for two primary reasons. The first and foremost reason why we do this is because the Bible commands us to. Hebrews 10.25, Paul says that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That we are to, we are expected by God to assemble together and that our assembly ought to be more uh, relevant and more often as the day of the Lord, as the day is approaching. We talked this morning in Sunday school about some of the directions that our society has been heading in and some of the um, warning flags and some of the, the places where we're well beyond warning flags in our nation, morally and spiritually. And as we talked about this, it could be somewhat discouraging, can't it? When you think of our nation and our government, when you think of the direction that things are going, it can be somewhat discouraging. And Paul says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, that one of, as we see the day approaching, as we see the end times drawing near, as we see the troubles continuing, as we recognize that every day is at one day closer to the day that our Lord will return. Paul says it should exhort us, it should compel us unto assembling, meeting together, fellowshipping one with another, encouraging one another in the Lord, working together for the sake of the Gospel. There's a second reason, however, that we come together. We see that in verse 17 here. He says that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. One of the other reason why we come together is because it betters us. May I say it that way? We come together because it betters us. It grows us. It stretches us. It convicts us. It encourages us. We're supposed to leave the assembly on any morning or evening and feel ready to renew our devotion to the Lord for the week. Perhaps encouraged. Perhaps strengthened for the week. A renewed zeal to serve the Lord. Coming together is a spiritual advantage for us. And when we don't come together, we ought to feel as if there was something missing. That we have lacked something that we need and that we want. However, there are times where that doesn't happen. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been going to a church and at some point you just realize that going to church is not being a benefit to you spiritually? That for whatever reason, and it may not necessarily be the church's fault, it may be your fault, it may be something in you, maybe a carnality in your heart so that you can't conform or you can't align yourselves in unity with the church, or it may be that there's something wrong in the church and you're just not comfortable there because you see this area and it's not being corrected. But whatever the case, the church assembly is no longer coming together for benefit. Well, Paul said that this was the place that Corinth had found themselves. They were coming together not for the better, but for the worse. People weren't leaving closer to Christ. They were leaving alienated or confused or discouraged. They were leaving farther from God in their relationship, more carnal, or with greater offenses than when they came. And that's the situation we step into. And the problem in the assembly of Corinth uh, was really two main areas. or There were two main issues that they were having a problem with. The first was their disregard 
in relation to the corporate observance of communion, of the Lord's Supper. The way they were doing it was wrong and it was causing real issues in the church. The second problem is a problem that we'll look at over the next several weeks in chapters 12 through 14, and that was abuse and confusion in direct relation to spiritual gifts. So they were coming together and their fellowship was wrong, and they were also coming together and their theology was wrong. Their spirit, they, they had not... Uh, been exercising the spiritual gifts properly. They were confused as to the purpose of the spiritual gifts and how they were to be used. And so today we're going to look at communion, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. Next week we will begin several weeks on chapters 12 through 14 as we look at spiritual gifts. What are spiritual gifts? Which ones are valid for today? Which ones are not valid for today? Why do we know that? Um, how do we use them? How do we pinpoint what our gift is? How can we use that gift to serve the local church and to serve our Savior, Jesus Christ? So that's where we will be going in the weeks to come. Today we're looking at this problem with communion. And as we continue, Paul says in verse 18 that first of all, the first problem is that when they're coming together, he says, I hear that there be divisions among you and I partly... Believe it. I'd like to take a very brief moment here to highlight something that Paul says that in our day and age is very important. Then we'll kind of jump back into the text. There's a great debate in the Western church today over the definition of the church. We've often said that this body is the church, that the building is not the church, the people are the church. If you are a born-again believer in this room today, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior by placing your faith in Him, by turning from anything else that you would be trusting in, baptism or church membership or doing good things or being a good person or whatever it might be, and you are placing your faith and trust entirely in the finished work of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins so that the Holy Spirit has indwelled your heart and you have been born again, you are a member of the church. And we've said that, that the church is the people and not the building. There is a great debate in Christendom over whether the church in Scripture is exclusively local in scope, or whether there is biblical allowance for a universal church. Some people do it the other way. They say the church is only universal, that there really is no established local church. Many fundamentalists, many in um, conservative circles, say that there is no such thing as the broad, invisible church in this age. They claim the church is exclusively local, that there is nothing other than the local church. And one of the arguments that they use is that the church specifically means, the word church in Greek literally means an assembly. How can you have an assembly if the people aren't assembled, right? And so if there is no assembly, then there is no church. Well, then there's others who claim that there's no such thing as the local church, that there is no such thing as an organized church. That, yeah, believers are supposed to be part of the broader church, and then they're they supposed to assemble, but they're not supposed to get organized. They claim that the church is only invisible. And while there are definite benefits to coming together, any attempt to organize is a threat to the individual priesthood of the believer. In other words, every man is only accountable to Christ, not to a church. As we consider these two spectrums, and you think about even what we've been talking about the last several months in 1 Corinthians, legalism on one side and license on the other side, Where does God want us? In the middle, right? Liberty. Not going into legalism, nor taking advantage of the grace that God has given us and falling into license. We don't take advantage of our grace to sin. We don't prop up our standards as the end-all be-all. We rest in the middle, where we have standards to protect us from sin, but we recognize they're only standards. They're not law. They're not um, the de facto way that you know someone's a Christian if they have your standards. But at the same time, we never, ever, ever fall into the concept of justifying our sin by saying, well, we're under grace. Well, it's like that in many other areas of Christianity as well. Free will of man, sovereignty of God. Where do they, where's the right perspective? Well, it's right in the middle. And here we see it as well. You know, local church... 
invisible, universal church. The truth is in the middle. The truth is in the middle. There are several places in Scripture where the Apostle writes to believers and it is obvious that he's speaking to the invisible church, the universal church, the church in the broad context. Specifically in Ephesians and Colossians we see this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Paul says this, that Jesus Christ hath put all things under His feet, or God hath put all things under Christ's feet, excuse me, and gave Him, that's Christ, to be the head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. There's no question here that this church is the grand church, the universal church. Everybody in the church, if you're a born-again believer, then Jesus Christ is your head and you're a part of His body. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, Paul says a similar thing. And He is before all things, and by Him, that's Christ, all things consist, and He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. There it is. One church, one head. Jesus Christ the head, one church, the church, which is the body. However, when it comes to the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul uses this word church, he is using it almost exclusively in the local church context. Almost every time you see the word church used in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking of a local, assembled, organized body of believers. And it's quite clear from Scripture that God intends believers not only to assemble, but also to organize. If He had not desired the church to organize, then He would not have ordained over the church pastors and deacons. You don't have ordained leadership if you don't have or an organized church. If he had not desired an organized church, he would not have instituted the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The verse that we are in, verse 18, also very clearly reveals that the church is a corporate function. Paul says in this verse that when you are come together, you're coming together in the church. We cannot get around the language here. You go back to the Greek and it's saying the same thing. The church is not being referenced here to be the believers in Corinth. It is being referenced as the particular assembly of believers in Corinth. A local church. Paul did not say when you come together as a church, did he? He said when you come together in the church. A big difference. The church has a location. The church has a definition. The church of Corinth, in obedience to the apostles, regularly came together in the church. They came together for church. They had a place in which they regularly assembled that was called the church. So it's not a misnomer necessarily to call this building the church when we're speaking of the local church context. He says when you come together in the church. So yes, the church is indeed the people as born-again believers, but the church is also organized. A place where we meet. That is why this church is organized. That's why we have a charter. That's why we have church membership. Because organization is an important element of the church. Consider with me also 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul writing to Timothy the pastor, and he says this, If I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Just after Paul spoke of the qualifications for a pastor and the qualifications for a deacon, Paul tells Timothy that the reason why he wrote about the, the offices of the pastor and deacon, the reason why he gave these qualifications is so that Timothy would know how to behave himself in the house of God, which is the church. The local church is not simply something, folks, that pastors have thought up so that we can earn a living. It's not just the local dunce of the family that says, oh, I can't earn money any, any other way, so I'm going to become a pastor. Because then I don't have to do any work, and I just work on Sundays, and, uh, and people will pay me to do it. That, that's not the local church, folks. The local church is not simply a superficial con game seeking to dupe ignorant people into sacrificing their freedoms in Christ for a personal commitment to organized religion. The local church is sound doctrine. 
It is the command of God to the body of Christ that they would assemble and organize for the edification of the saints and for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. Now, of course, there's much in Timothy, there's much in Peter about ways in which the local church can be abused. We must take that, we must understand that, we must build protections into the church. But the church is valid. And when these believers in Corinth, back into verse 18, were assembling in the church, Paul heard that there were divisions among them. And he says he partially believed those reports. This word divisions, schisma in the Greek, is the same word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, if you recall, as Paul rebuked the church for the divisions in the body. Remember, they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, that would be, that would be Peter. And they were all claiming loyalties, false. They were erecting false barriers against one another as they claimed loyalties to different religious men instead of loyalties to Christ and to the gospel. So, whereas the local church is to be a place of unity of the Spirit and direction, in Corinth, the local church had become a place of division, both physically and spiritually. We'd seen that spiritual division in chapter 1, verse 10. In chapter 11, we see physical division in the church. However, Paul says that this is not necessarily to be unexpected. Look at verse 19. Paul says, there must be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Paul actually says that it is important and necessary that there be the word heresies. It's the word heresies in the Greek. Literally there you can see meaning divisive choices, sex, or disunion. There must be disunion among you Because when there's disunion among you, those things that are true bubble up to the top. Undoubtedly, you've seen this in your Christian life before. You're able to recognize the false because you know the true. You're able to see the cheap copy because you've seen the real thing. You know a false conversion because you've seen what a real conversion is. You know false doctrine because its results are opposed to what you know the results of true doctrine to be. I was uh, listening to a message one time and the illustration was given of um, how it is that the U.S. government identifies counterfeit bills. There are so many different counterfeiters out there and so many different um, ways, variations in which counterfeiting uh, money can happen. Someone asked one time, how is it that you're able to keep up with all of the changes in counterfeiting? And the answer was simple. They said, we don't. We simply know what the true one looks like so clearly and so well that when a false one comes across, it's obvious because we know the true one so well. It's the same thing in our own lives. We, it's tiring, even as a pastor, to try to keep up with all of the false doctrine that's out there. There's always something new. I'm constantly trying to read books so that I can help my people be informed on Well, what about this new book? What about the shack? What about heaven is for real? What about all of these things that are coming? What about the Da Vinci Code? Pastor, can you give me some help here? What's going on? And, you know, your pastor can do a lot of reading and a lot of study and he can try to keep up as best he can with all this stuff, but there's just too much error for any one man to keep up with. So how does your pastor and how does any man combat error in the church? By making the truth so clear that everyone can see error. By making the truth so obvious that error stands out like a sore thumb. And error is rejected by default because it's not in line with the truth. And that's what Paul says. He says there must be heresies among you. There must be error. Because when there's error, that which is true becomes manifest, is made clear. Paul says there must be disunities when the essence of one's faith and doctrine is tested and comes out clean on the other side, you know it's true. When faith and doctrine are tested and it comes out dirty, you know there's something wrong. I was at the door of a Catholic woman in the area when, we were, when I was door knocking last year. And one of the great points of arguments that she had against me was the fact that Protestantism has divided in so many different 
denominations. She says, how can you say that you are right when you can't even agree among yourselves? Well, there's a bit of truth to that, isn't there? I mean, we're a little church of 25, 30 people and there are 15 other assemblies meeting this morning in Buffalo. 15,000 people, 15 assemblies. Wow. That's a lot. 13 denominations, 15 churches. Maybe some house churches we don't even know of. Why? Why are we here instead of meeting in one of those other churches? Well, because we've pinpointed either points of faith and practice where we say this is not in line with what we understand the Word of God to say. Some of them teach the Gospel. Other ones don't teach the Gospel. But there are elements of the Word of God that we believe are not being held faithfully unto. And this is what Paul says a necessary process. To maintain truth, there must be error to make the truth obvious. And there will always be error until the day that Jesus Christ returns. And so, yes, to the Catholic mind, the Protestants are just a big mess because we've all broken up into so many different segments. However, that's a natural process. Separation is a natural process of purity. If there is no contention ever, then either people are toeing the line against error, or it's a very short period of peace before people start to question. Verses 20 and 21. Paul says, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. I mentioned a few moments ago that the divisions in this church were both physical and spiritual. In regard to the Lord's Supper, this division was physical in nature. Paul says to them, when you're coming together, you are not coming together to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, he's not telling them not to come together to eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying, you're coming and you think you're doing it, but you're not. You think you're coming together to eat the Lord's Supper, but you're doing it wrong. So you're actually not doing it at all, regardless of what you think and regardless of what you claim. People always come to God with good intentions, but if we don't come to God His way, then it's nothing more than good intentions. Paul says, yes, you're doing this thing called the Lord's Supper, but you're not coming to God His way. So you're not doing it. The problem is, when they were coming together, there was no communion. We call it communion. There was no fellowship. There was no communion. We've talked many, many times about the two operative words in relation to the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about it again as we observe it in just a few moments. Those two operative words are memorial and fellowship. The first word, memorial. The Lord's Supper or communion is intended to be a memorial of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It does not have a mystical effect. It's not necessary unto salvation. It is a memorial of that which Christ has already done. The second operative word that we use is fellowship. The Lord's Supper is about fellowship with Christ and with one another in corporate union. Notice Paul's description of the events that we are observing. He says in verse 21, In eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. Verse 21, And one is hungry and another is drunken. Everyone brings their own food and eats. Those who don't have food don't get to eat. Those who do have food are engaging in gluttony and bringing alcohol and imbibing on alcohol and getting drunk. No fellowship in the assembly. No memorial in the assembly. Just a feast for the haves and the have-nots are out of luck. Could you imagine if we did that in this church? We said, okay, everybody, bring your own food for our meal. we'll, We'll use the example of the dinner on the grounds. The last Sunday of every month, dinner on the grounds. We ask everybody to bring a main dish and a dessert, right? Now imagine, we said, okay, bring your own food if you're able. And there was a family in the church, they were having a hard time. They didn't really have enough food to bring. 
They didn't even have enough for themselves that day. Or they'd forgotten food. And so we say, oh, yeah, come on down, come on down to our meal. And we sit them in a corner. And we say, you can watch us eat. And we all eat and we have a good old time and we are just more food than we know what to do with and we're, we're stuffing our faces until we can hardly move and all the men are loosening their belts because we just can't fit anymore in our stomachs. And there's those people over there that they didn't bring anything, so they don't get anything. No fellowship. No memorial. Absolutely nothing having to do with why we're here. And that's what was happening in Corinth. So notice what he says in verse 22. He says, what? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Should I praise you in this? I praise you not. Paul says, do you really think so little of your fellow believers? Do you really think so little of this assembly Do you have so much disdain for the memorial of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, His blood and His body, that you would be willing to allow your brethren to go hungry while you stuff your face and do it all in the middle of a time that's supposed to be meant for fellowship with God and with the brethren? There was a real disconnect in this church. But it's a disconnect I fear that can happen in any church. It could happen even in our church if we are not careful. This was a division. It was a division between the rich and the poor in the church. It was open shaming of those that had nothing to offer. And that was absolutely disgraceful. So Paul takes it in hand to remind them what the Lord's Supper is all about in verses 23 through 26. Verses that I have read to you once every two months. I say once every two months because on the Sunday evening we go to the book of Luke for our, our time in, the, in communion. On Sunday mornings we go to 1 Corinthians every other month. And he says this in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. The word there is not highlighted, but delivered is the word that you, you would see in the Greek there. To give over or to deliver up. Paul begins by saying that he received this instruction directly from Jesus Christ. Now, recall in the beginning of this chapter, Paul had talked about the ordinances he had delivered unto them. And these ordinances that he had delivered, literally the word there was traditions. Oral tradition. Not commands of Christ. We see very clearly that this, verses 23 and following, is a command of Jesus Christ. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. What we would call today an ordinance. And Paul says that... um, Jesus Christ, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. The Gospel accounts of the Lord's final supper are found in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22. It is these events that Paul is speaking of, not only in a historical way, but more an instructive way. He says this is something that Christ expects us to do. Something He expects us to follow. And so, verse 24 tells us that Jesus distributed the bread and asked them to partake after He had given thanks, and to do so in remembrance of the body which was broken for them. Now we know that His bones were not broken. The Psalms prophesied that not a bone would be broken. The Scriptures tell us in the Gospels that His bones were not broken. However, that does not mean His body was not broken. Isaiah 53 tells us He was bruised for our iniquity. That His body was beaten, was Horn was broken for us. And it was Christ's desire that when we partake of the bread, that we would remember the physical agony that He went through before and as He was placed on the cross. Verses 25, excuse me, verse 25 He did the same thing with the cup. 
After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. In the very same manner, he took the cup, calling them to remember the New Testament, the New Covenant that would be enacted by his spilt blood. He suffered the physical anguish of being broken for us in his body, but it was as his blood was spilt... It was as His blood was shed, for Hebrews tells us, based upon what Deuteronomy tells us, based upon what Exodus tells us, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so Jesus Christ had to be the perfect Lamb of God. He had to sacrifice Himself on the cross of Jesus Christ for our sins because we couldn't pay for them ourselves. So He had to pay for them with His own blood on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21, our memory verse for the month. For He, God, hath made Him, Christ, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him, Christ. That's the memorial. That's what the blood was spilt for. That's what we do when we partake of the fruit of the vine. We remember the blood which was spilt for us. Let me just take a brief side note here. If you are in this room and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there's a message directly for you this morning. And the message is this. You are a sinner. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As a sinner, you have fallen short of God's glory, God's holiness, God's standard for perfection. God cannot allow imperfection into heaven. God cannot even allow imperfection into fellowship. So whereas at one time mankind in the Garden of Eden was in fellowship with God when man fell to sin, fellowship was broken. You say, well, Pastor, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not really a sinner. Thou shalt not steal. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If you have ever taken something that does not belong to you, if you have ever lied, disobeyed, or otherwise dishonored your parents, if you have ever taken the Lord's name in vain, blasphemy, if you have ever lied, thou shalt not bear false witness, you have sinned. And the first time you ever sinned, you fell short of God's glory. And God says that in just punishment for your sin, you must go to a place of eternal punishment called hell. A place of burning for eternity. That's bad news. For the wages, the payment of our sin is death. Physical death, we will grow old and die one day, but spiritual death, separation from God forever in a place called hell. Well, thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Because the Scriptures tell us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, there's no way that you can earn yourself to heaven. You are a sinner. You can't undo your sin. You have fallen short of God's glory. You can't work your way back into that glory. You can't go to church enough to get yourself to heaven. You can't give enough money to get yourself to heaven. Your good will not outweigh your bad one day. All of those concepts are false. But what is true is that you don't have to because God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into this world. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. He did not deserve that death. He had never sinned. But the Scriptures tell us that as He hung on that cross, His body being bruised and broken for you and His blood spilling upon the ground, that God looked at that and He said, I am going to pour My wrath for My sin upon My perfect Son, Jesus Christ. And as He did so, Jesus Christ bore your payment. So that you don't have to earn your way to heaven. Nor do you have to flounder in darkness until the day you die and go to hell. Jesus Christ paid the penalty and He holds it out to you and He says, if you will but accept My free gift, you will be saved. But like with any gift, if I were to hold out a gift and say, take it, it's already paid for, it's yours, I've designated it for you, here you go, if you don't take that gift, it's never going to be yours. 
The Scriptures tell us that even though Jesus Christ has already paid for your sin to get you to heaven, if you don't accept the gift, then that gift is not yours. You must accept it. Well, what does it mean to accept the gift of Jesus Christ? The Scriptures tell us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, John 3.16, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To reject, as we've mentioned already, anything else that you're trusting in for salvation and to accept that Jesus Christ is the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me, Jesus said in John 14.6. And if you will accept Christ as your Savior, even right now in your seat, you will be saved. The Scriptures tell us the moment you are saved, if any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, you are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. You are born again made new in Christ. If you've never made that decision, may I encourage you to make today the day you say, Pastor, I don't fully understand. Come see me. Come see me after the service and I will show you from the Bible how you can know for sure that you are on your way to heaven when you die. So Jesus Christ, as He offered up this remembrance, He says, this is the new covenant, the new testament in My blood. This do ye as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Do this as a memorial of me. And in verse 26, he reiterates, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show, that word there you can see, to announce or to declare or to publicly proclaim the Lord's death till the day that He comes. As long as we come together in a solemn fellowship, distribute the elements, partake of them together, we are publicly demonstrating and publicly remembering the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And this is what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's about God's people coming together and corporately declaring that their faith and hope rest in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. It doesn't say anything about consuming the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ, that they become the body and the blood. It doesn't say anything about a special blessing being conferred upon you. It doesn't say anything about it being a part of your salvation to secure it or to maintain it. It tells us that the Lord's Supper is a memorial in which we as the church remember the death of Jesus Christ and publicly declare it to the world. This, however, does come with a divine warning. Notice verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink the cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. So let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. The warning is this, that a man or a woman who comes to partake in this memorial in a manner that is openly contradictory to its stated purpose, as he scorns the memorial of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, is actually scorning Christ's sacrifice. And this is a big deal. To scorn the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, particularly as one of His children, is disdainful. And thus he says in verse 28, let a man examine himself. And after examining himself, let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. When you enter into the observance of the Lord's Supper, it should be a time of personal examination that number one, you are a believer. And that number two, you are entering into it with a heart and mind that are personally aligned with the purpose and the intent of the memorial. That you're not making a mockery of the memorial. At this point, we need to discuss what it means to eat and drink worthily. Verse 29 says, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. This word in the Greek, as in the English, is an adverb. I don't know how well you know your English grammar, but an adverb modifies often, usually a verb, can modify an adjective as well. But adverbs quite typically modify 
verbs. And in this case, it is indeed modifying a verb. Which means to, be, to, to drink unworthily or eat unworthily is not modifying the person that's doing it. It's modifying the action of eating and drinking. And this is very important. It's not talking about whether you are worthy to partake in the observance. It's talking about whether the manner in which you are partaking of the observance is correct. So just as Christians in Corinth were partaking in a manner that shamed those who had no food, in a manner that Paul described as profane as they had their drunken revelry, so too if we approach the Lord's Supper with a physical or a spiritual attitude that casts shame or disdain upon this memorial. Paul says we eat and drink unto ourselves damnation as we have failed to set the Lord apart as something to be revered and honored. And notice what this damnation is. I will hasten on. We're uh, running out of time here. Notice what this damnation is in verse 30. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. That word literally being a word in which they use to describe death. Paul says that those who scorned the body and the blood of Jesus Christ by making a mockery of the observance became weak and sickly and many of them even died. When God's people begin to publicly scorn the sacrifice by which they have been saved, God will greatly chasten His children, whether it be through illness or even to take them home. And this is very serious. The manner in which we observe the Lord's Supper is very serious as Paul presents it. Now, most churches today, even if they don't understand exactly what the Lord's Supper is all about, they do it reverently. And so, we wouldn't necessarily blame anything happening as far as illness or death in the church on our observance of the Lord's Supper as it is something that is a manner issue and we have that baked into our church very reverently. But Paul calls upon each person, verse 28, to examine himself. Not just for proper corporate observance, but also for proper personal observance. That we in a very personal way would not scorn Christ's sacrifice through our approach to the Lord's Supper. We'll apply in just a moment um, that truth. Verse 31. Paul says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. So Paul's recommendation is that you judge yourself. You judge your own heart. You judge the way your assembly is doing it before God has to judge you. If you will humble yourself before God now, then God won't need to go to great lengths to humble you later. Verse 32, But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. However, God's purpose in judging us is that He would correct us so that we would not fall into the sins of the world and thus the consequences of those sins. Not death and hell, but of chastening and loss of reward. Verse 33. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together, this is the conclusion, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. The rest I will set in order when I come. So Paul's conclusion was that if they're going to come together and partake in the Lord's Supper, to do it together to tarry one for another, to await one another, to receive one another, to do it as if it's actually communion, fellowship with one another. That communion would not be a time of selfishness or of public shaming, but of love and care, one with another. Two applications as we close today. Application number one. Communion is a memorial of brotherly fellowship. Treat it reverently. Communion is not about you. It's not about a little snack. It's not about an opportunity for everyone to see you take part so that they think you're godly. It's not about your salvation. It's not about a spiritual blessing. It's about declaring Jesus Christ and His death in a corporate fashion whereby you as God's people come together and declare your unity in the Spirit through Christ. The guilt associated with not discerning the body and the blood of Jesus Christ is very severe. We approach communion in the right frame of mind and as a part of this, it ought to be reverence. Paul described it as eating and drinking unworthily when we do not revere this observance, when we disregard the sanctity of the occasion and disregard the brethren through this occasion. Second, 
Judge your own sin before God must judge you. The scriptural principle of judging ourselves lest we be judged can span beyond just the Lord's Supper. We understand that when we sin before God, the Holy Spirit convicts us and we have one of two options. We can either respond by humbling ourselves through repentance or we can harden our hearts against that conviction and continue to sin. The Scriptures bear out that should we choose to stubbornly continue in sin, God will judge us, bringing circumstances into our lives that will bring us to a place where we finally are broken as His children and willing to obey. If you're an unbeliever and you harden yourself to a point, it says the Scriptures tell us God may let you go. No longer convict your heart of sin and allow you to face the consequences of your own decisions in eternity. But there is that better option. The Bible says that when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, we have the opportunity to take action. If you're an unbeliever in this room and you know that you need to be saved, that's the Holy Spirit's conviction in your heart. And if you respond, the Scriptures tell us that God will respond in turn with mercy. If you're a believer in this room and you have sinned and you know that you're doing something wrong or have done something wrong and there's conviction in your heart through the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures tell us if you will but respond to that conviction by humbling yourself before God, confessing your sin in repentance, that God will forgive. There's no need for chastening if you've already confessed. Chastening in the lives of our children is intended to bring them to a place where they find repentance. If we have found repentance, then we don't need the chastening. Now, that doesn't mean there won't still be consequences for our sin, but divine chastening will not be one of them. When we judge ourselves, when we repent of our sin, when we keep what we might say as a short sin account with God, He will have no need to chasten us unto repentance. While there may be natural consequences God will not need to chasten. So as we close today, we've learned much. It's my prayer that as we looked at the first of these two major divisions in the church of Corinth, that it will have helped you gain perspective on our own church, on what we do, why we do it, even the fact that it's to be expected that there would be divisions. It's not right. They need to be taken care of, but we can expect them to happen. And as we think about communion, may I encourage you to renew in your heart a desire to observe it properly. As we think about sin, may I encourage you to judge yourself lest ye be judged. Perhaps by God's grace you have learned some things that you can then take to your family and friends who might have a misunderstanding of what communion is and help them understand. If the Lord has taught you through this message, may I encourage you to act upon it. If you're an unbeliever and you need to be saved, may I encourage you as well to act upon that. Let's close in prayer.